This is The God Show, a conversation about the human spirit, with your host, Pat McMahon. Yes, it's happened again, and since this is an international program, for those of you listening in Ireland, or for those of you who have any ties to Ireland, I'm going to tell you that it is an absolute and total coincidence that, yes, I have another one of those guests, John <laughs> John Edward Crean Jr. with John Patrick Michael McMahon. <laughs> but however, besides the origins, ethnically, let me tell you that he's here for another reason, many other reasons. The very Reverend Canon John Crean, Dean Emeritus of the Diocese of Western Michigan, taught at Yale University of Wisconsin. I'm not going to bore all of you with the entire biography. It's most impressive and very, very interesting. Uh, and he's currently a West Coaster, not far from me, not far from where we're doing this program in Phoenix, Arizona. But he's a, uh, a reader at the Huntington Library in San Marino, California. What exactly do you do during the day, John, as a reader? Well, when I uh, visit the Huntington, uh, which is not far from where we were living uh, uh, earlier in July when we moved out here to closer toward you, uh, when I was living in Altadena, Pasadena, I would go down and spend the day at the uh, at the Huntington. A reader is a sort of an ar- arcane term for a scholar, a visiting scholar. Mm. And uh, they have all kinds of manuscripts, even medieval and a lot of religious stuff. Um, Huntington himself was an Anglophile, and he collected everything he possibly could collect having to do with English, uh, with history, religion, what have you. And so I have found a, it was just a treasure trove of – it's one of the major research libraries in the country – like Beinecke at Yale or um, the Newbury Library and so on. So um, it's funny, in order to become a, quotes reader there, you have to have an earned PhD, which I did, and you have to have a professorial status, which I have as Professor Emeritus. So um, it was just an absolutely wonderful place to be, and they treat you like royalty. <laughs> it's just, it's a great, great place. And I published one article and. Uh, I think I finished one book there, too, and I started another one there with a, uh, another a co-author, another scholar. But and, now uh, that you're a California desert dweller, yes. y- your obligations are what? Well, um, I'm, I'm retired from academia, of course, and uh, um, retired by COVID from any uh, you know ministerial activity here. So I, I just um, am writing. I've got three books going at the same time. Uh, and um, so uh, just oodles of time for writing and reading and meditating and praying and uh, having a grand time right here in a beautiful part of God's uh, world. That's a nice life. And we're going to be concentrating on one of the three books, Recovering Benedict, subtitled 12-Step Living and the Rule of Benedict. And... In reading about Benedict, uh, he is often referred to as the father of Western monasticism. What does that mean? 
Well, there's Eastern monasticism, uh, and that was actually earlier. St. Anthony of Egypt, Anthony of the Desert, uh, he started it a few centuries earlier, but it was in a different part of the world. And um, our friend Benedict of Nursia, which is Norcia in modern-day Italy, was an Italian. And so that's Western, considered Western monasticism. And... um, so, you know, it's like the division that you have in the church from 1054 when you had the uh, the Great Western Schism, you know. So you have the Eastern Church and the, the Western Church, the Latin Rite Church and the Orthodox and so on. So it's um, he definitely is the starter, the first one to codify a rule for monastics uh, in the Western Church. And, and I know him... Uh primarily as a Catholic kid uh, because of the Benedictine colleges, uh, one in Kansas, and we have one in Mesa, Arizona now that's been here for just a few years. Is that the same Benedict? Right. Well, tell tell me more about him, because I know about him simply through uh, the, the Benedictine colleges, and I don't really know that much more about him biographically. Well, the only biographical hints we have are uh, the writings of of, uh, Gregory uh, and his dialogues, Pope Mm -hmm. Gregory. And uh, so that's a bit sketchy and and somewhat hagiographical, too, with a lot of, you know, good legends thrown in and stuff. But essentially, this was a guy who um, lived in the, uh, was born in 480, uh, you know, outside of Rome, and he was essentially uh, disgusted. He was a layperson. He never was ordained a priest or anything of that kind. He's a layperson who was just completely turned off by the immorality of Rome uh, and, uh, you know, what was sort of passed off as, as the observation of the Christian religion. He didn't like it, and uh, so he decided to simply flee to the desert alone and have time for solitude with God. Uh, and others then discovered him, and that's how it grew from there. But that's who Benedict was, in, essentially an Italian. Uh, and, so, uh, the book, and the book, we should yeah. acknowledge, uh, is titled Recovering Benedict because it is about the 12-step program, uh, originally... Uh, the premise, at least, of 12-step living, that of Alcoholics Anonymous, that's what we're usually associating it with. Why your interest in that? Well, um, I, um, I'm i a Benedictine oblate, uh, and I don't know if you know what that means, but it's a, a person who is associated with a monastic order uh, you can be an oblate of a Franciscan or Dominican, what have you. I'm a Benedictine oblate, um, uh, which means that I, it's sort of like the, how shall I put it, the next step to becoming an actual monk yourself mm-hmm. and living in community. Uh, and I made my, they call the oblation, O-B-L-A-T-I-O-N, uh, in, in Munich, Germany, which is my field of expertise is German, uh, linguistic stuff. So I'm connected with this abbey in in Germany, in Munich, and uh, I made an oblation there at the invitation of the abbot. 
so I'm an OBLSB, with some initials after my name. So my my scholarly expertise is the religious literature of the Middle Ages, Germanic uh, religious literature of the Middle Ages, particularly, and I focused on the rule of St. Benedict. I mentioned this in my introduction to the book. Um, and uh, I've studied it in specific details. I won't go into all of that right now, but um, uh, that became my major focus, uh, essentially, for most of my academic career, uh, at least um, the last 30 years of it. So I was interested in the Benedictine rule, and that brought me into Benedictine life, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And um, I'm, I've been well acquainted with uh, the recovery literature and the recovery movement and uh, 12-step work. Um, uh, being a priest, you know, that kind of goes along with it. You have to know that. You have to know the uh, the whole spirituality of of AA and, and of 12-step work. <clears throat> and um, so I, it occurred to me, I spent a sabbatical um, four months in um, Munich at my abbey. And it occurred to me that that's an absolute connection when you have the principles of of living, of healthy, sober living, and you look at the rule of Benedict, you have the uh, a simplified, uh, flexible rule of life. I, I just saw the connection immediately, and that's how the book uh, arose. And it's very clear throughout the book, particularly because we're talking about visiting your book, Recovering Benedict, on a daily basis, uh, with 12-step living so closely associated with that practice. Your publishers have written that Benedict pulled together various strands of monastic spirituality into a single handbook for holiness. Alcoholics Anonymous, meanwhile, presented an equally innovative way to address alcoholism based on 12 steps drawn from numerous spiritual sources. And I congratulate you for finding a way to tie the two together. Uh, but I'm not still quite so sure that I understand, since I know so little about Benedict, why he's so closely associated, not just with the sins of Rome, but associated with addictions in particular. Can you explain? Well, technically speaking, we don't know whether he was or he wasn't. Uh, it's too scanty when you're talking about the uh, 480s and so on in the five, early 500s uh, to know any more biographically about Benedict. But it's, that's a very interesting uh, avenue. I had never thought of that. Um, the connecting points are not so much that. The connecting points are... The whole um, discovery process for um, for the people who created the AA and the Big Book and so on and the Twelve Steps and all the principles that go with that, the Twelve Traditions, um, the the way that was constructed and came about was from classical religious principles uh, and. They are at the basis, as you know, perhaps, I mean, the the fifth step is confession, essentially. Fourth step is like an examination of conscience, and 
the fifth step is a confession to somebody where you you basically put out all the things that you've done mm-hmm. and uh and then you have other so all of those steps are very spiritual first one you have to acknowledge a higher power and type of thing and and uh, the 11th step for example is about a conscious contact with god and keeping up by meditation and prayer and perseverance so these are all basically spiritual principles and they align beautifully with what see what benedict did simply was to create a very flexible rule it's 73 chapters but they're very short chapters and it was a flexible way to account for the fact that the people who are going to gather around Benedict are going to be all sorts and conditions of people. And he had to have a rule which would apply to all of them. And it's flexible. It always comes back to the abbot, can make adjustments. And even in the prayer plan, I mean, he has 10 chapters. <laughs> I mean, minute uh, description of how you pray and what psalms you say when mm-hmm. and how, etc. But at the end of all of that, he says, but if the abbot thinks it should be done differently, go to it. Go, go have, at, have at it. No problem. <laughs> it was a total, I mean, totally flexible. And that's why that rule perdured for all these centuries, and even unto today. And it's translated into every language you can think of. And how I get, got on board, I wasn't going to go into it, I'll just mention briefly, was uh, I was presented with a uh, feminized version where all the masculine reference were changed to abbot to abbess, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. And this was a very interesting, and I, I wrote oodles of stuff about it. I, I published a, uh, a, a critical edition in 92 uh, on this. But you see, the, the fact that that even under, was undertaken was because the rule is so flexible as to adapt to any situation. And uh, that's why it's lasted. There are a number of other uh, rules uh, for religious orders and ones that were attempted to be written, and they they collapsed. They went out of use because they were too strict. They were too. They didn't take into account the uh, flexibility, the uniqueness of the human person. And 1935, uh, according to the research that I've done over the years on that remarkable concept and the organization of Alcoholics Anonymous that has since become so many prefixes followed by Anonymous, Um, but 12 steps, but three people. And this I, I really found fascinating as I was reading Recovering Benedict, because it is a daily visit that you offer to people for their own personal use and decision-making. But the three people, Dr. Bob, Bill, and Benedict, talk about that triumvirate for a while, particularly with the audience who may not even be familiar with the precepts and the origins of Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh, It was was Bill W. and Dr. Bob. Um, They simply... (laughs) found each other and uh you know at the time the the whole concept of alcoholism was you know looked at as a moral failure as opposed to being a disease which uh they finally um identified and and could proceed from there now the third person you mentioned was of course benedict and as i say they're not they're not connected directly but 
Benedict was seeking healing in another dimension. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the church at Rome had just gone wild. I mean, and I mean, Rome had gone wild, and then the church had, uh, had sort of, you know, joined the party and, and uh, didn't maintain the, the faith once delivered unto the apostles type of thing. And um, he couldn't be nurtured by that. It was sick. Okay, you might say there was a sickness there. There was kind of a, uh, uh, you know, a plague that he had to kind of quarantine himself from. And he ran off to the desert and quarantined himself and found another way to to connect with God. And others, you know, he wasn't the only one that was completely put off by what was going on. And others went out and had heard about him. You know, the news traveled. Uh, and uh, they gathered around him, and that's how it all started. So I guess the connection is uh, seeking healing. I mean, that could be a subtitle for the book almost, you know, seeking healing. And, and so the origins were um, a, a layman, a pious layman. So again, I have to have to reiterate that everybody thinks, oh, yeah, he must have been a priest or a bishop. No way. The guy was just, you know, just a normal person like you and me and went out and and, and did his thing and seeking healing and he found and when these others gathered around him he needed some kind of a rule um rule in latin was called regula which is our english word to regulate it's something to regulate your life now my book is divided for daily readings according to the traditional plan um when people join up with the um, with the Benedictines, they have the rule read to them three times a year, and the the way that that uh, three times a year is uh, set up is it's in little snippets. For example, I just happen to open my book to page uh, ninety two. There it has March nineteenth, July nineteenth, November eighteenth. Those are the dates when you. <laughs> It's funny, I opened up to chapter 40, which the title of it is The Proper Amount of Drink, <laughs> <laughs> which is very funny. I mean, that's got to be a joke God's playing on me as I'm looking at this. So I just opened up to that page. Um, I was once asked by the abbot, he said, well, how do you handle chapter 40? I said, you handle it very gingerly. <laughs> <laughs> but I noticed in going through the book, the dates, in this case, March 19th, July 19th, November 18th. Uh, uh, Go over that, please, if you will. Okay, those are snippets, as I call them, from the rule. The rule has 73 chapters, and so this particular one takes an entire chapter, and it's just the reading of that that chapter. Uh, This one, as I'm looking at it, has two paragraphs. Uh, Some chapters are longer, and, you know, they, they go over several days. But on that particular day, let's say November 18th, uh, that would be the assigned reading from the rule, and it would be read. It would be read aloud uh, at the uh, noon meal, perhaps, or depending on the monastery, it might be read some other time or place. But in any case, all Benedictines on November 18th are supposed to read this particular part of the rule. Now, what I've done is reprint that exactly as it's in the in the rule of Benedict, according to the Erie translation, which is marvelous, done by the uh, Benedictine nuns in Erie, uh, Pennsylvania. So pr- print that out. Then I reflect on it, and my reflection uh, is uh, t- uh, partially an interpretation of what is being said in the rule, 
but then how does it apply to recovery? Uh, and so, um, you know, that's that's why you have that's why the book is divided this way. And so the book is meant to be read three times a year, and uh, every time I reread those little snippets, the daily snippets, I I see other things. I see all kinds because the book is flexible, marvelous, unique, uh, and keeps speaking to me. Um, year after year. We missed the date, uh, November the 18th, but since this program goes on infinitely <laughs> into the future, <laughs> uh, you uh, you can't miss because next November 18th, it'll be an opportunity to go back and, and look at a line, for example, I noticed last night when I was looking at this, I happened to come upon uh, the uh, the same chapter 40. And we read the monastics should not drink wine at all. But since the monastics of our day cannot be convinced of this, <laughs> let, us, let us yes. at least agree to drink mm-hmm. moderately and not to the point of excess, for wine makes even the wise go astray. Exactly. And you see, that's, that's classic <laughs> Benedict. That's classic Benedict. I mean, he's totally flexible. He's totally realistic. But the tie, the bond uh, with your work uh, in, in the book, Recovering Benedict, uh, offers such a, uh, such a bond with Alcoholics Anonymous that uh, I was surprised at uh, even that flexibility uh, to be included because I always associate Alcoholics Anonymous with if you're going to be a part of this, it means not a little wine, not a little booze, none at all. Right. But uh, what I say in uh, this one paragraph, if I may just quote briefly from it. Please. Uh, I said, those of us in recovery from alcohol dependency obviously know what we need to do with this section. Abstain. (laughs) Mm -hmm. We have no other option. But those of us recovering from other addictions can also take a lesson from this chapter. If If I'm addicted to sex, love, and relationships, or to food, I need to note that while any of these are healthy or harmless for the non-addict, for me, they may not be abused without serious risk. And the 12-step programs seemingly have a high degree of success outside of alcoholism. Uh, yes, all of those indeed. addictions that you were just talking about. Yes. Can, can you now, after all of these years of study and research, uh, can you come to some kind of a conclusion that allows the rest of us, that will allow the rest of us to understand why that success and why it has continued since 1935? All I have to say is the sequencing of the 12 steps. And in my book, I adapt them a bit. It's a very slight adaptation of them, but uh, the sequence of them where, you know, you admit you're powerless to start off, you believe in the higher power, you commit to the higher power, you examine your life, you admit, you know, exactly what you've been doing wrong. You say you're fully prepared to go on and remove these. You ask 
God remove them, and you make amends, uh, and then you have step ten is just sort of a review step. Says, I continue, ex- I continue examining my life, and whenever I do wrong, promptly admit it, because we're going to screw up from time to time. I mean, we're human, right? But then, as I said, eleven, I seek more conscious contact with my higher power, asking for discernment, perseverance. And twelve is the pass on step. So this this cycle is just, and you, you go through the cycle again. You don't just once you reach the twelve steps say, "Oh, good, I made, I got it made." You know, no, you go back to one. In fact, there are devotional readers. There's one that I use every day myself, which is um, called a Life Recovery De- a Devotional, uh, which has uh, you know for each month. It's, it's step one is January. It's nice that it's twelve. You know, if you have twelve months, and you keep, you keep the whole point is repetition. You go through it, and look what the Benedictines do. They go through the rule again and again and again. It's repetition. There's a, a Latin proverb which says repetition is the mother of learning, and it's really true. You know, repetition. So I think that the why it works. You ask, you know, something that was kind of drafted in in 35 and came to life in 39 with the first uh, edition of uh, the big book Uh, i think it's that regular routine it's a regula having a regula of life a rule of life something that regulates your life so that your life is just not haphazard you know uh, spontaneous uh, and without direction this is an ongoing it's an ongoing thing if i'm at step six i know when i've Complete that, I go to seven, and so on and so forth. But I still find it difficult to understand on a personal basis. Yeah. I find it difficult to understand why it is the 12-step programs consistently are successful regardless of what the addiction is, because the addictions are so dramatically different from one another. Uh, for example, uh, the availability of alcohol the uh, the temptation in front of you on television, radio, print, everywhere, and it's available everywhere. You, you can't walk into a store in Arizona that doesn't sell booze. But, <laughs> but, it, but you can't get meth that easily. A, a, a horrible substance, massively addictive. And sexual addiction, uh, the... The strange addiction to buying things, uh, th- that kind of thing, that is also an addictive reality. And they all seem to respond well, at least in a large number of people, to the 12-step program. Mm. There's more to the 12-step program than just the 12 steps. I mean, it's a whole, it's a whole way of life. I mean, it's attending meetings. It's having a sponsor. It's reading the literature in between the meetings. Uh, you know, each each of these um, separate addictions have like a condensed version of the big book, which is sort of addiction specific. You know, and there's literature in there. There's a tests. You know, people are writing in and so on and so forth. And one is supposed to be reading that through on their own. In other words, you just work. It's called work your program. And and what they say at these meetings is it works if you work it, and it won't if you don't. So work it. You're worth it. Uh, you know, 
it's a wonderful little uh, thing to say, but it, it requires uh, it requires some attention. I mean, I know of of um, addicts that go to meetings, you know, six in the morning before work or five or something like that, the most inconvenient times, and but they're so devoted to doing that, they're not going to they're not going to you know take shortcuts because they know shortcuts are a, you know a road to a, um, oblivion. So it's a it's a whole it's a whole kind of how shall I say it's it's like a program you know it's it's a it's a it's a complete program and the neat thing about it too is that like Benedict like the rule they they allow for people's flexibility people's uniqueness and nobody is called out because they don't conform to some kind of magic norm you know there's there's nothing like that. There's that uh, that understanding of the human person, and those groups are so welcoming. I mean, absolutely marvelous. It's it's like your own little house church, if you will. And for many people, quite frankly, you know, coming to recovery, uh, that is their that is their religious community. As a matter of fact, my personal experience with those who have been a part of the twelve step programs and Alcoholics Anonymous in particular, uh, it, it does seem to be, in many ways, a devotion and a faith unto itself. And I personally have experienced broadcast management, a, an individual that was so totally devoted to the success of his organization uh, financially, fiscally, uh, uh, culturally, that uh, it consumed his life when he was at the office. It was a matter of, we've got to get better, and we did, we did this, and now we're going to do even more. And, I mean, it was that kind of... Um, of driven success story. And yet, I was present on a few occasions when during a major meeting uh, with executives that he wouldn't be seeing all that often, people that were going to be important to the cause and to him personally, were there present in the meeting. And he interrupted the meeting and excused himself and walked out of this very, very important gathering of fellow broadcasters because he received a message from the person that he was counseling. And he simply knew that he had to leave. He excused himself and he did it Two or three times when I was around him, John, uh, I suppose it probably isn't that unusual, but it's something that, it's a kind of a devotion to a cause that I won't forget. There was no question about what his priorities were at that time. His sponsorship of that person who let him know he was in need at that moment. Yes. Well, that was his sponsee calling him, and uh, <clears throat> that's part of the program. 
you you have access to your sponsor, uh, you know, and obviously there was a call. And yes. if you're in if you're in temptation, or if you're considered the terminology they use is, uh, are you safe? Do you feel safe at that time? I mean, safe from falling into the addiction. And he must have been in a, a crisis moment. Called him, and he considered that like a doctor, if you will. Uh, you know, you said counselor, uh, somebody who, to whom he has a has given that that allegiance, that um, relationship, uh, and he stepped out of a meeting of that magnitude. That says an awful lot. It also um, to those whom he confided what it was about. Uh, he's also revealing, in the sense that he is uh, in the program. Yes, and yeah. he was quite open with a, a lot of people about that. And and he would talk about his personal failings and triumphs with uh, clarity and uh, often with a great deal of pride. But the impact that that had on me uh, when when he interrupted everything else in his business life, and his business life was so important— to him, uh, when he interrupted that two or three different occasions uh, in order to care for somebody in need, uh, I'll never forget it. It was yeah. something that had a, a, an enormous impact on me as to the uh, as to the overwhelming importance of the twelve step programs themselves. Well, his his thing was very characteristic of that because uh, uh, probably he was a man who had had quite a bit of sobriety, a number of years, and uh, you know that he um, he was just totally committed to helping a younger, uh, a beginner person early in recovery. They have a lot of difficulties, and uh, so um, yeah, it's a, it was a marvelous testimony to what a uh, what an obligation he felt, and it, and it certainly superseded all of his. Uh, his, if you will, secular uh, pecuniary uh, uh, pursuits. I mean, there was nothing more important than this, and he was not afraid to demonstrate this. No, while he had had his own personal experiences with alcohol, it didn't end there because he was also helping uh, people that I knew uh, who had a very serious problem with cocaine, and a couple of other substances. It was not just alcohol because of his personal experience. It seemed that he was able to communicate with all of them. Yes. Yeah, well, you see, it, uh, it's witness. It's, it's an absolute witness of doing that, and uh, uh, it, makes, uh, it makes people you know, take, a, take a second look. That 12 step is key. I'm going to just read that to you, if I may. It's, it's really, it's, you know, it's amazing. And this is my uh, translation of it, if you will. Grateful for my spiritual awakening from working, working these steps, I share my experience with others while practicing these principles myself one day at a time. So I, I call it the pass on step. It's the, you know, it's the point where you really feel committed to, to, to sharing this, not in any soapbox fashion, for heaven's sakes. I mean, you know, the second letter is always A, meaning anonymous. Uh, but sharing it in, in a very realistic way, and obviously this um, executive that you, you mentioned was serious, very serious about it. And um, 
it's a blessing. And what a witness. I mean, that was kind of an eye-opener for you, and you really hadn't had much experience with this whole area at all, but it certainly spoke to you. Have you found that there's a disproportionate problem with alcohol and the ministry? Well, only because it's very uh, it's very available, and uh, it's um, frankly more of the stuff is is uh, substance abuse. You know, there's two types of 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 of, uh, of abuse, and substance abuse is the one where you'd have alcohol or drugs and stuff. But I think the the more prevalent one is things which are um, following a marijuana use because. Uh, we consider marijuana a, a gateway drug, and um, specialists agree with that concept. You know, there are others who say, "Oh no, it's not. You can just stop with marijuana." But um, that is often the doorway to to much stronger stuff. Uh, and I think so many variants and you know substances are synthetically created and stuff that there's a whole plethora out there which go well beyond alcohol. So I don't I don't have any statistics as to which is more prevalent, but I would guess from from my experience that it's more drugs, you know, recreate so-called recreational drugs. We're talking uh, with John Edward Crean Jr. um uh, and uh his titles by the way are not included on the cover of the book, because there would be no room for the title <laughs> of the book itself, Recovering Benedict, uh, with a subtitle, 12-Step Living and the Rule of Benedict. The book is a daily devotional, uh, but is it a companion to what you referred to earlier, the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous? It certainly could be, but it isn't uh, structured that way. But it would be great correlative reading if somebody wanted to uh, deepen more in the direction of um, the recovery aspect rather than the, uh, the the monastic side. Yeah, it would be an excellent uh, an excellent piece. Um, and for the other addictions, you know, you mentioned uh, what I call retail therapy. You know, when you go out and buy too much stuff, and you know you you run up your credit card. I mean, that is a real addiction, no question about it. And all of those um, uh, correlative addictions, if you will, to the to the alcohol, they all have their big book, which isn't that big. It's it's a much smaller, maybe three hundred pager, uh, and that would be excellent correlative reading for whoever is in a particular addiction uh, to read that. Uh, that book along with this. I'm a big fan of daily devotionals. I use about three or four of them myself. Um, and um, it's a small dose, if you will, but it's meaningful. And it's something you can journal off to. Um, I, I'm still old fashioned. I like to write my journal longhand. Uh, <laughs> but just something in the rule on a particular day or what have you might trigger something. And there I am and I can, I can journal it. So I love a daily devotional. And this particular book, I was surprised when I saw it actually in the flesh when the book came because it's really small. <clears throat> I thought the book would be longer when I figured all the, all the pages I sent to the publisher. But it is really short, and I think that makes, uh, makes a lot more sense nowadays in our busy lives to have something which is short and uh, to the point. You've introduced us 
uh, to Benedict, and uh, probably for most of us, it's the first time that we really have had that kind of insider's introduction to someone uh, that lived that long ago. But in more contemporary terms, introduce us to Dr. Bob and Bill W. I can't really, uh, in, in, uh, in all honesty, tell you much more about them. I really... Uh, Dr. Bob uh, was a surgeon, wasn't he? I'm not sure. I've, I have to be honest with you. Mm. I don't know the bias. I've, I've read that a long time ago. But uh, there was another interesting partner to all this, and that was some Jesuit. I can't remember really? his name. Oh, yeah, yeah. And uh, Father, I don't know what his name I can't remember what his name was, uh, but it is in the big book in, in the, the founding of AA. Uh, and he was only played a large role in that. He was really, if you want to talk about a triumvirate, it would be more uh, Dr. Bob and Bill W. and this Father X, whatever his name was. But he had an SJ at the end of his name, and he, uh, he was an alcoholic himself, and... Uh, worked in with them to to develop this thing. And I wouldn't doubt that a lot of the spirituality and the steps um, derived from his um, input. There's no question in my mind, just mathematically alone, that in the audience that we have that is planet-wide, there are a number of people who are struggling uh, right now, trying to find uh, a reason to seek sobriety uh, and and a reason to believe that it'll be successful. Uh, you talk so often about the spiritual aspects, and you've written in Recovering Benedict so much about the spiritual aspects. But what about non-Christian addicts? It, it, it seems as if when we talk about the 12-step program, most of what we hear has to do uh, with uh, with Jesus and Christianity. Well, I, I kind of think that the, the 12 steps, the spirituality of the 12 steps is, um, uh, if you will, religion neutral. It's in the realm of the spirit. It's not in the realm of religion per se. There are plenty of analogs, obviously, to the Catholic or the Christian tradition there with confession, etc., and all that. But most, I think most of these non-Christian religions will have analogs. Now, I can't uh, elaborate on that because I really don't know much about these other religions, but I bet you I would wager that anyone who looked, well, certainly the Judeo part uh, would work, you know, uh, for for the uh, for the Hebrew c- component. Uh, but I would wager that if one looked at the Buddhist or looked at the Hindu uh, uh, spirituality, I bet you'd find all kinds of analogs to this. Now, I'm sure somebody's written about this, but I am not conversant enough with that. But what I'm trying to say is, I think the spirituality of AA, if you will is really uh, having to do with the human soul, the human spirit. It doesn't, it doesn't depend on, you know, the Christian model. Certainly Benedict picked it up, you know, in, in, in that term. I mean, we pick it up in that terminology with Benedict, but it is not really Christian. Uh, there's no copyright on it but for Christianity. And I, I would love to... Um, to uh, invite someone to work on this particular area, I mean, to take those 12 steps 
and uh, look at them in terms, it's probably been done, but in terms of Judaism, in terms of um, uh, Hindu and, and particularly Buddhist, because we have an awful lot of uh, consonance, of resonance between Buddhism and Christianity. There's really? a lot of work done on this particularly with with Buddhist monasticism mm-hmm. and with Christian monasticism. A lot of stuff's been done on it, still being done on it. Um, our friend uh, Tommy Merton, uh, unfortunately, uh, who died in Bangkok. Excuse me for giggling, yeah. but I just, yeah. I've never, <laughs> I've never heard anyone call uh, Father Merton Tommy. <laughs> oh, yeah, 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 well, to his friends and so on. Not that I was one of them directly, but I know other monastics or Cistercians who did. Anyway, that's what he was working on. He was in Bangkok, and I think he was really championing that whole idea of, look, there's one spirituality has to do with the human psyche, the human soul, which is non, which is non-specific as far as religion goes. If you visit uh, the Vatican, by the way, I don't know whether you're going to try to get away with, hey, Frankie, uh, when you when you have your audience, but uh, I would imagine he probably would be accepting of that whole concept. Oh, uh, oh, he would indeed. There's a bishop uh, who whose name is first name is Frank, uh, and uh, he uh, he, um, he wrote a book called Speaking Frankly. <laughs> Very clever. Before we get off the subject, by the way, yeah. about the twelve step programs being available to one and all, uh, since so many associate, if they don't know anything about the other steps, they associate that acknowledgement of the higher power uh, that is such an important part of the 12-step program. How does that help the atheist who is right now struggling with addiction? Great question. Um, the whole thing of using the term higher power rather than God is because the term God is so loaded with the wrong images and, you know, it's just, uh, it's just over the top with, uh, with, uh, stuff which is not helpful. And the higher power thing works with, with atheists. There are more agnostics, by the way, than atheists because, uh, most people just simply don't know and, it's not a question of they can prove there's no other God, there's no God. I mean, that's a, an atheist, a true atheist, should be able to prove what they believe, which is you can't prove that there ain't one, you can't prove there is one, really. Uh, but w- let me say this, that I think almost everybody universally would agree that there's something higher than, than us. There's something, uh, we're, not the, we're not the biggest fish in the universe, there's some bigger fish there somewhere, and um, that seems to work with everybody. I, you know, most people are not really atheists; they're either agnostics or a-religionists. You know, they just they don't want any part of it. Mm-hmm. You've often heard, you've heard, I'm sure uh, you've heard the, the expression, uh, "I'm uh, I'm spiritual but not religious." Uh, yes, <laughs> I hate that. I mean, you know, as a priest, <laughs> I hate to hear it. It's bad for business, you know. <laughs> I mean, you know, we want to we want to get to all those shekels in, right? <laughs> You're beginning to sound like Barry Fitzgerald in some of those Bing Crosby movies. Yeah, yeah. But you see, the point is, it's not that difficult for most people to accept that there is some 
uh, uncaused cause is one of the proofs for the existence of God mm-hmm. from St. Thomas. But there's something out there, you know, even the Big Bang, somebody must have caused the Big Bang, too. I mean, however you interpret it. So it's an easy sell, if you will, in terms of persuading somebody that we need to surrender to something outside of ourselves, you know, despite the whole uh, tendency toward American rugged individualism and all that, you know, and the world is mine oyster and all that nonsense. Uh, most people buy that. And it's not, it's not a difficult, it's not a difficult concept to adopt. And, um, it works. It really works. And I think it's important to keep that terminology. Um, I did that, um, through my, when I did the ad- adaptation of the 12 steps, I kept that term higher power. It's not in the original. Sometimes I think in the original 12-step wording, you have the word God. And I think it's important to keep that terminology and leave it there and not go into anything else, God, Lord, any of the other you know, words that can really be loaded with the wrong images. In the 20 years we've been doing The God Show, uh, from so many different perspectives, and uh, because we really don't talk a lot about specific religions unless it's really going to be an interesting analysis of something that people have only vaguely heard about. Uh, but uh, most of the time it's about the behavior of humankind, such as what we're doing today. And I must tell you that in those 20 years, every week, uh, we have done so many different subjects from so many different perspectives. Never have I ever done anything about a book that so interestingly described the monastic life. Uh, I, I don't think I've ever known as much about abbots and prioresses <laughs> as when I was reading Recovering Benedict. Um, let, let the audience know about that part of what they'll be experiencing, uh, besides all of the different dates for the little, uh, the, the little bits of information that you were referring to before. Talk about the monastic life in Recovering Benedict. Well, of course, the rule is uh, in very modern, uh, understandable English uh, in in my book, um, the translation of the rule. And um, you get to really see um, how they interact as a community, how the monks or the nuns uh, interact uh, with one another, what's expected of them, and the kindness, uh, the flexibility and kindness and humanity of the abbots and prioresses. I want to just uh, say a quick word about the terminology. In Europe, Europe, this is really important to know, in Europe you have abbots and abbesses. Uh, An abbess is the equivalent of an abbot, it's the female. In fact, uh, in Europe you have what's called a mitered abbess, that is to say, uh, uh, this woman abbess would wear the mitre, the pectoral cross, the ring, like a, a normal bishop would wear, uh, and as their male counterparts do. An abbot is technically the bishop of his community. He's what's called the ordinary. 
uh, and so, but what happened in, in in the American church, of course, they had, I guess they had abbesses a long time ago, but was abrogated, uh, no pun intended. <laughs> uh, it, was, it was done away with at some point, and so the head of a, a female religious community, a Benedictine community, is called a prioress, not an abbess. They they didn't they didn't want that term. Unfortunately, uh, I mean, my preference would be abbot abbess. You know, universal church, uh, but that's just a terminological thing. It's very confusing too because you have uh, in any Benedictine abbey, let's say a male abbey, you have the abbot, and then the second in command is the prior, mm-hmm. and then you have a sub prior too, actually. Uh, in a in a female uh, monastic uh, Benedictine community, you would have the prioress, and then I guess you would have the sub prioress, and that would be it. Um, so uh, that's a terminological thing. But in in reading through this rule, particularly somebody who was encountering it for the first time, you get a real feel for the family unit there because you every community every benedictine community is unto itself it's autonomous now they're connected to like a worldwide thing and to a local thing but every abbey or monastery or whatever it is is autonomous and it rules itself according to the rule of benedict other than that everything is up for grabs in terms of how they operate I want to take this last minute and a half of this program to offer you the opportunity to talk to that person right now, somewhere, somewhere listening, intrigued enough at the concept of the book, Recovering Benedict, to think, well, maybe this is where I get help. And I'm asking you right now, with only a minute left, to help them. Well, that's a pretty tall order in a minute, but I I want to say, first of all, I really have enjoyed this opportunity to be with you and to um, be with your audience worldwide. I would say you could pick this book up and read it through, uh, if you will, on one side of the page, meaning read it through looking at the rule of Benedict and looking what monastic life is like. And or you could look at the other side, which is where I make the connections between the monastic life, the details of that, and the process of the 12 steps, the process of of coming to sobriety, sort of either or. But I would say it would be certainly an easy entrance for somebody who is looking for some organized way in which to approach health. To, to approach wholeness, um, it's a it's a lifelong struggle for all of us. We all have addictions of one kind or another, capital A or small lowercase a. We all are have things which kind of take over our life one way or the other, and so I would um, I would invite anyone who is who's even mildly interested in looking at that whole question to pick up Recovering Benedict and see what it means, how one can integrate the spirituality of 12-step living and the spirituality of monastic life. I warn you, in reading the book by John Edward Crean, Jr., you may find it habit-forming. 
This is The God Show, and I'm Pat McMahon.